Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. The New York Times reported last week that climate change poses a threat to national security and that military tensions between nations and migration are likely to rise as the planet continues to warm. One of the key issues blocking environmental protections is the influence of moneyed interest groups. Attorney and environmental activist Richard Jacobs examines the legal issues involved in his new book, Democracy of Dollars, Where Natural and Constitutional Rights Go to the Highest Bidder. It's from Indies United Publishing House and brings Richard Jacobs to our show now. Welcome. Welcome. Glad to be here. According to a January 2020 Pew Research Center poll of of 33 countries, only 29% trusted our president. And in June 2020, a Gallup poll reported that only 25% of Americans trusted Congress. Doesn't that suggest we're in a serious crisis? Uh, There's no question about it. Uh, We've gotten a long way from being a democracy of the people. We've become a democracy of special interests which is unfortunate. It's a democracy where dollars rule and the people don't. And there's no reason for the people to have faith in that kind of government. And and you write, I'm quoting, the two political branches of our federal government, the legislative and the executive branches, designed to protect and serve all Americans, have become willing resources to special interests who in today's pricey politics can buy their way to the head of the line. Does that apply no matter whether the the president or Congress is dominated by by one party or the other? It's it's not a party issue. It's a government issue. Both parties are so dependent upon money today. Uh, it's, I'm sure everybody who's listening to this broadcast gets a, a dozens of requests for money every day. The parties are so dependent upon money, they all have to bow to money. You quote Julia Olson, the chief legal counsel of our Children's Trust, who asked, will we be a true constitutional democracy for the sake of our children or to a democracy sold to the highest bidder in the most influential interest groups? What are some of the influential interest groups that most concern you and, and what are they trying to achieve? Well, take for example, the current, there's a current discussion of reducing pharmaceutical prices. And so what we find today is that the pharmaceutical industry is lavishing campaign contributions on the Democrats and the Republicans, and it doesn't look like Congress will move ahead to let people in the United States pay the same price for drugs that people do in other countries. That's one example. And AARP so, keeps on sending me notices asking me to, to protest that. I think we should. I think we should. The problem is what the studies show and what I certainly found out in the work that I have done is that the voice of the people, as people, have very little to say in government. They're just not listened to. It takes a lot of money to get listened to, and uh, you can have a lot of reasons to support money if that's what you're getting, and that's what's happening in Washington. You argue that wealthy special interest groups are influencing our courts and that a system of checks and balances no longer exists because of that. Uh, Is that because most judges are appointed? No, I, I, what has happened is, is that the presidents, if you go back to the early, uh, many days, years ago when I was in law school, the presidents normally picked their judges from a group of judges that were considered to be very competent. They were chosen by the ABA. They, they were sort of vetted by the ABA. But that's no longer done today by the, Demo, by the excuse me, by the Republican presidents the last Republican presidents have totally skipped that kind of vetting. 
they've rather chosen judges that are approved by their political party that have a political bias. Mm -hmm. And that creates a significant problem in the independence of the judiciary. And that goes against the whole concept of the judicial branch with lifetime appointments of judges because it's supposed to function non-politically as a check over the other two branches. But you write, the court has grown overtly dependent on its judge-made rules of deference to those political branches. Explain what you mean by that. What are judge-made rules of deference? Uh, the Constitution says in in, in um, Article One of the Bill of Rights that everybody, every citizen in the United States should have redress to the courts for their grievances. But that really has become a political statement or a theoretical statement as opposed as opposed to the actuality. What the court has done, uh, they've decided that certain types of cases they will not hear. They, they defer to the legislature, they defer to, to the executive branch, and they won't hear them. They, they claim they're a political question and beyond the court uh, court's ability to deal with it. And that's really not true because you'll have one court that says this is a political question and you have another court that says it's not a political question, it'll be the same set of facts. What it boils down to, when they, when they defer to the political branches as they're doing today, they're leaving people without remedies. The people's problem today resides in the executive branch and in the legislative branch because they're essentially governing for special interests. So when the court says, hey, we can't decide this issue, it's a political question, go to the legislature or the executive branch, it's sort of like the example I used in Democracy of Dollars. It's like Farmer Brown, when his hens come to Farmer Brown and say, hey, look, we have a fox in the house, help us. Hmm. And Farmer Brown says, hey, I can't do that. Go to the fox and make your peace. Well, the hens aren't going to get peace. The people aren't going to get peace going to the executive branch or to the legislative branch when they're not listening to them. These are what are called deference doctrines? Deference doctrines. The political, the political doctrine, the, the court says, this question is the political question. We won't decide it. Um, that's one example of, of what, a, what a, a deference rule is. The other deference rule is one of standing. It says that you don't have standing to bring a case before the court to get your issues. Uh, this came to me in, in very boldly in work I did after I retired with our Children's Trust, which is a group, a charity that helps a group of children who bring issues before the court dealing with our environment and they, seeking a good environment to grow up in. And the question is, hey, that's a political question. We can't decide that. You have to go to the legislature, to the executive branch to, to deal with it. Well, when the executive branch and the legislature respond to the fossil fuel industry, among, among other industries, and refuse to deal with it, we have no issue. We have no, no solution to the issue. So you would like to see the court provide judicial reviews of cases and controversies when natural and constitutional rights of, of persons are at stake? They have to. There's no, the people have no other choice. It's, it's the legislature and it's the executive branch that are abusing the people today. People may not realize it, but that's what they're being abused by these two branches. And if we don't have the court sitting on the outside, fulfilling the role, calling the balls and strikes, as Justice Roberts said, they have nobody to protect them from the 
from the executive branch to the legislative branch. And when the court says you have to go to those branches to solve your problems, you can't go to that branch to solve the problems because they're the problem. Well, thinking of Justice Roberts, uh, the, the, the court didn't always call the balls and strikes the way uh, someone like me might have seen them. Well, and I had the, the uh, I had the advantage of the uh, the TV camera right behind the plate. <laughs> well, the problem is what he does is like all the judges do; they tend to select the calling of the balls and strikes um, depending on who the pitcher and the batter is. So, is, has this always been the case? What about when uh, Chief Justice John Marshall? was there the 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 uh the justice who'd been appointed by John Adams our second president did he uh w did he have a fairer court i think that he did he he of course was the, was the pioneer of what the court does or should do <clears throat> excuse me and uh much of what he did in those early days is is still the precedence of which the court is supposed to pay attention to um, where the court really got out of sync was in the late 1800s um, during the great rise of the railroads and these other industries where tremendous pressure was put upon the president and upon Congress to appoint judges that were very favorable to business because business didn't want to be interfered with by states. They wanted just to be able to put in the railroads. They wanted to build whatever it was they would to grow and they didn't want any interference. It was in those days that the court decided. But well, that, wasn't uh, that seen in to the benefit of the country in some people's eyes? Well, certainly seen to the benefit of the, of, of the people who were expanding <laughs> what was going on in the country. But what they did is instead of treating it in a fully rational fashion, they came up with some judge made rules, which are with us today and which create a distortion of reality when they deal with constitutional issues. For example, in, in, in those golden ages of the, of the late 1800s, the court decided that corporations have the rights of individuals. Well, mm -hmm. corporations aren't persons. They're, they're, they're creations of state law. They're, they're fictitious entities. And that tilted the law dramatically in favor of the corporations and expansions to the detriment of the people. Now that that's an interpretation of the Fourteenth Amendment, isn't it? No, I don't. Oh. I don't think it is. The uh, okay. It, it what happened was, I forgot who was running for president right now. I think it was Garfield, but I'm not really sure. But he he was told by folks who put up money, the wealthy folks who put up money that if he didn't appoint, appoint judges to the Supreme Court that favored business, they weren't going to support his reelection. Mm -hmm. So he got put in a bind where he, where he either had to appoint the judges they wanted or he wouldn't have been elected president. Uh, what president was that? It was the one in the late 1800s, which mm -hmm. I'm having a senior moment now, but I think it was Garfield, but it was, okay. it was, it was a, long, a long time ago. And that's where the court started to, to favor businesses, really started to favor business. Now you can say, yeah, that helped the expansion of the country. And that's true. Um, but it also overran the rights of people that were injured in the process. Including the indigenous people who lost their land automatically. 
yeah, they, they certainly were. But certainly more than that, uh, how you pay people for doing work and most kinds of issues all slid away in favor of those people who had the money to pay the people who did the work. My guest on today's Leonard Lopez at Large is Richard Jacobs, whose uh, the book we're discussing is Democracy of Dollars, where uh, natural, well, let me get a bit better from in my eyes. The, the book cover is very dark, um, where natural and constitutional rights go to the highest bidder. Uh, and uh, this is WBAI New York 99.5 FM. We're live, streaming live at WBAI.org. Now, the court has fulfilled its responsibility in the past. You, you write, it has recognized new forms of cruel and unusual punishment. It is guaranteed that people charged with serious crimes must, be, must uh, have appointed counsel. Uh, and perhaps in its most shining hour, it is recognized that separate but equal education violates the 14th Amendment's equal protection guarantee to all children, regardless of race. Um, is, are you as pleased with the way the Supreme Court has been acting more recently? Not really. Um, of course, not everything they've done has been detrimental, but I think the two areas that I have seen that are currently being detrimental uh, are the suppression of rights of people and the and allowing the legislative branch to over-delegate to the president. Let me just take them one at a time. The Constitution is clear. It says that the exclusive right to adopt legislation is in the legislative branch. It says the executive branch, which is the president, is supposed to do like a president of a corporation. He's supposed to administer those laws. But what has happened over the years is that the legislature has delegated to the president the right to make laws. Um, or at least laws, to propose laws, right? I mean, no, 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 actually make them. I, but they're called administrative rules. Uh, okay. In other words, we have now a fourth branch of government that is unelected. It's the administrative branch. It's all the agencies that are in the executive branch um, that really run the government. There are hundreds of these agencies and there's millions of people that are employed by them. And what, what, what we do have, we have presidents doing two things. They are appointing political heads of those agencies. The original idea where they were approved by the Supreme Court was that they would provide expertise to the to the government in, in about complicated matters. But what's happened is the, the presidents have appointed administrative agency heads that are fundamentally political persons that believe as does the president to, to, to do what the president's policies may be. So we have political heads running administrative agencies and they adopt rules and they decide what rules are going to enforce and they interpret the rules and they enforce the rules they want to enforce. Uh, in a given year, we may have 10,000 administrative rules to every 1,000 rules or laws that come from Congress. So the bulk of the laws that we live by today are being done by Congress. Now, there is a recognition now by the conservative court, uh, Justice Gorchess in particular, that this over-delegation is not constitutional. And I do suspect that the court may deal with that in the near future. I, I think they're realizing they've over-delegated to the president to, to put in the laws. 
The other thing the president does is he adopt a minister, executive orders, which are really outside the Constitution. The Constitution doesn't say anything about executive orders, but we've come to consider them to be valid. So we have a pre pre President Obama that puts in certain executive orders when he's president. Trump doesn't like him, so he revokes he revokes Obama's and he puts in the ones he wants. Biden doesn't like Trump and he revokes Trump and puts in Biden's rules. So we have no consistency in the law and we have no laws that were really heard by committees where people debated the laws and people had a voice as they would have if it was legislation. So that's one big area, the over-delegation. The second thing is the rights of the people. The court has in my opinion, turned its back on protecting the rights of the people. Now, if you go back to the Declaration of Independence, Thomas Jefferson wrote, it's to protect the rights of the people that governments are formed. That's the fundamental reason we have a government. We don't have a government that's really designed to give majority vote or minority vote or whatever. We have a government that's designed to protect the rights of the people, but our government is not doing that. Um, I've seen it happen very frequently it happens particularly today in the environmental areas where people are concerned about the dangers to our environment and global warming. And the court says, well, you may be concerned about it. In fact, they, they said it. The court has said you have a right to be concerned. They've said the environment is being damaged, but they're saying, sorry, you've got to go to the president or Congress to deal with it but they're not dealing with it. So we have no solution. So it's a, the rights and it's a delegation of the two prime problems. Well, actually bills are being proposed, but then you have disagreements within the legislatures, um, especially in the Senate where uh, just a, a few senators can determine whether something actually is enacted or not. That's correct. I mean, you may, ha you may have a group like you do today. You have, you have a Biden trying to propose certain laws but they're being handicapped by the, particularly by the Senate. How was the, it, go ahead, finish. No, no, that's fine, go ahead. How was the 14th Amendment, which was enacted after the Civil War in 1868 to protect the rights of formerly enslaved people, applied in 2010 <clears throat> to the series of cases known as Citizens United? Well, the, The 14th, this goes back, and I guess and you did make a point earlier, which I really set aside. <clears throat> the 14th Amendment rights, which were supposed to be just for the slaves, mm. were actually interpreted back in the 1800s to be rights of corporations. Um, that early. That early, yeah. And, and that's where, that really where a major problem started. So, so if, you, if you look at the 14th Amendment as, as endowing rights on corporations, and then we, we have a, we have the major problem. Well, didn't uh, the Citizens United decision determine that unlimited amounts of money contributed to political campaigns is a form of constitutionally protected free speech? Yes, I, and I think that's probably one of the worst. It was a series of cases which are known as the Citizen United. The Citizen United case was just one of them, but it's those series of cases which I think of are, are underlying much of our problems today. I don't think special interests would have the power they have today if they didn't have that right. Is that engraved in stone or can a future court reverse that? It's not engraved in stone, it was a judge's opinion. What, what boggles me about it is we have judges who make these opinions who claim to be originalists. By that I mean, 
they look to the Constitution and the words of the Constitution to find its meaning. But we have so many decisions made based on originalism, which are not covered by the Constitution. And certainly there's nothing in the Constitution that contemplated uh, political contributions. In fact, the Constitution did not even contemplate political parties, if you go back to it. It wasn't until Jefferson and Adams started to fight around 1800 that the idea of political parties arose. It was not contemplated at all in the original Constitution. What did they imagine? After all, they didn't want to have a return to something like a king. Um, I mean, what did they imagine when, they, when the Constitution was originally Yeah, I mean, I mean, George Washington was elected, but uh, he wasn't in a, a party. But there must have been, uh, before Adams and, and Jefferson, there must have been people who disagreed on, on how to, to run the country. Okay, if you go back, um, let's, let's, how it was originally designed, the people only had the right to vote for the House of Representatives. Senators were appointed by the states, and the Electoral College was voted on by the states to elect the president. So essentially, the states, it was a compact, the Constitution was a compact between states where states had those result, rights. So George Washington comes in as president, and then we have his cabinet, he, which was Hamilton on one side, Jefferson on the other side, um, that had different versions of what the Constitution was saying. That's when the debates started, really. You had Hamilton looking to, for a government that was fairly active and taking care of people and being active on, on a global basis. And you have Jefferson, who saw the government as being small and really a, a country of farms, you know, independent farms. So we had stress on the individuals on one side and stress on a, on a strong government on the other side. That's where it started. And then when Adams was in the camp, uh, one camp, and Jefferson was in the other camp when, when they ran for president after Adams was pre the second president. And that's where it really blew apart and, 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 and uh, political parties came to be. It, it ultimately came to that, uh, but they, they never originally saw that as being part of the government. It is interesting how political parties change. For example, there are aspects of the Republican Party today that are similar to what the Southern Democrats stood for in, in the uh, 40s and 50s. Yes, uh, what happened was after Lyndon Johnson um, caused the Civil Rights Act to be passed, he said, I think we've just lost the Southern Democrats. And of course, Nixon then took that up and as a battle cry, and it started with Nixon, followed by Reagan. The Southern they strategy. Went, yeah, the Southern strategy where they went after the Southerns. And so fundamentally what happened is the Republicans, which were once the party of Lincoln, suddenly became the party of the South. Isn't one of the responsibilities of the court that judges must take into account change social and economic conditions as well as past legal precedents? Uh, so if that's the case, why is Roe v. Wade under threat of being reversed now? Well, you go back to, to a, the fiction. The fiction is the Constitution is the document which we must interpret as to its original meaning. There's nothing in the Constitution that deals with um, abortion. So 
somebody who claims to be an originalist will read it and saying that was a wrong decision. Uh, when I was in law school, it was the Warren Court was, was the court. I mean, that court was perhaps one of the most active courts. Actually, Warren was a Republican governor appointed to the Supreme Court by, by Eisenhower. But that but he, was the last almost liberal court that we've had. And that was that's correct. That's yeah, a while and that's ago. One, and that was back in the 60s. And, and that was a court that gave prisoners rights. That was the court that saw that uh, cruel and unusual punishment as it was handed out in, during the days of the uh, Constitution or the early, early colonies it was not the way you ought to do things today. But there are, there are many who say that court was way too liberal and they went way beyond the Constitution. But what's missing, and I discussed this in the chapter on, on, on our in, inherent rights, our unalienable rights. The Ninth Amendment of the Constitution says, the Constitution does not make a complete expression of our rights. People have certain unalienable rights and it's the purpose of the government to protect it. That's really what the Ninth Amendment is all about. Now the courts have been unwilling, some of the courts have been unwilling to go beyond the literal words of the Constitution and look into the history of people as to what are the unalienable rights that they're supposed to be protecting. Um, where abortion falls in, for example, would be like where the right of privacy falls in. There's nothing in the Constitution that talks about the right of privacy. But Justice Douglas, when he wrote his opinion on, that, on the case, he said the right of privacy is in the penumbra of the Constitution. It's something that is historic in humans. It's been with us for a long time. So those unalienable rights that are not stated in the Constitution are based upon the way we've lived for centuries. And uh, there are too many today in the court and certainly in the very conservative movements that want to overlook the Ninth Amendment and the Constitution. But don't we also, uh, strict constructionists kind of ignore some aspects of the, uh, of the Constitution. For example, the Second Amendment, which does not say everyone should have, a, have the right to have a gun, but it talks about militias uh, specifically. Well, militias are different today than they were then, but uh, where did militias come into this, the argument that anyone should have the right to have a gun? Well, this, this was, I think, uh, Justice Scalia, the late Justice Scalia, wrote the, the decisions about the Second Amendment and the right to guns. And he claimed to be doing it on the basis of original, original construction. Yeah. But, but what he did was ignore the history of the Second Amendment. You have to remember, the Constitution is a compromise between 13 states, some Southern with slaves, some Northern who didn't want slaves. And they, they made compromises. If you look back into the history of it, the Second Amendment which, which refers to militias and the right to bear arms, was put in there fundamentally to protect the rights of the southern states who used their militias to go out and catch slaves, and they didn't want the northerners to take away their guns to do that. Now, you can't come to the conclusion that Scalia came to if you deal with that history. So he is an originalist when he wrote the opinion about the Second Amendment totally left out of there any reference to the militia, totally left out of there any reference to the history of how that 
of the debate between the northern and the southern states. And, and he just came to the conclusion, well, they had guns in those days and we have the right to hold guns today. Uh, but it's very interesting. He, he then varied. Um, because if you have the right to have guns, then, and you're the originalist, then you look back at the kinds of guns that people had in 1776. They had single shot front, front loaded muskets. Uh, but once Scalia found the right to, to have guns, then he said, well, we don't have to limit ourselves to the single shot muskets. We can look at what are the guns of today. So he really didn't follow the original meaning. You say you're not looking for the court to be an activist court that would uh, operate outside of the Constitution, but rather an engaged court. What do you mean by that? The, the court has to look the court has to look at what the purpose of the Constitution was. Um, one of the chapters in, in the book, I discussed Lincoln's apple of gold. And it's something I don't think that I really realized until I did the research for the book. Certainly, I had courses in constitutional law. I've been involved with constitutional law as a lawyer. But what, what, what I discovered as I was doing the research was that there was a paper that Lincoln wrote in, in 1861 that was not found till after he was dead, where he wrote about the Constitution and the, and, and the Bill, excuse me, and the Declaration of Independence and what their relationship was to each other. And he said, the apple of gold is the Declaration of Independence, which gives us the unalienable rights, the rights that we have as citizens and, and, the, and the formation of a government to protect those rights. And he said, the Constitution is the silver frame around the apple of gold, which means from, a, from an interpretive point of view, when you interpret the Constitution, you should be interpreting it with what the Declaration of Independence says are our fundamental rights. And if you don't take those two documents together, then you miss the purpose of what the Constitution is all about. You're listening to Leonard Lopez at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Everybody knows that the days are loaded. Everybody rolls with their fingers crossed. Everybody knows the war is over. Everybody knows the good guys lost. Everybody We're back with uh, Richard Jacobs, who has been voted one of the best lawyers in America. The book we're discussing is Democracy of Dollars, Where Natural and Constitutional Rights Go to the Highest Bidder, published by Indies United Publishing House. Now, let's talk a bit about gerrymandering, because that's all part of this. Partisan gerrymandering has become a big issue again recently. You note that it destroys the Constitution's mandate that the vote of each person is equally effective. Why has it survived so many legal challenges over the years? Well, it, it hasn't survived. If you go back into history, when I was, we have to go back when I was in law school, um, political gerrymandering or partisan gerrymandering was viewed as being unconstitutional. What, what the Warren Court decided, with, I think it was a Baker decision, was that when states, and states do our voting laws, when states de define the districts, the voting districts, the boundaries of the districts, 
they cannot discriminate against the concept that every person has a vote. And, and the cases that came up back in those days were, were racial cases. And they are again today. If you look at what uh, Texas's latest uh, redistricting plan is, uh, it kind of pretty much eliminates uh, the, the, the voting power of, of minorities, including eliminating totally the, the voting power of, of African-Americans. That's correct. Well, what, what has happened, they don't call it racial gerrymandering. They call it uh, political gerrymandering or, or you know, that's it, really what it boils down to. It's, it, it's gerrymandering by the party in power on a partisanship basis to remain in power. And what it, here, if you look at the way the country is organized, you look at a map of the country, the huge populations are in population centers in the cities. And if you look at what Texas is doing, what Georgia has done, what Florida, where I live, has done, um, they have fundamentally formed their voting laws to give the vote of the people who live in the outbound communities and the small communities where tend to be conservative, more vote rights than the people that live in the concentrated uh, communities. That's what gerrymandering is doing. Now, the fact is when you, when you gerrymander in Georgia, for example, so the people in Atlanta have less the votes, you're, you're, you're gerrymandering against, um, on a racial basis, really, you're gerrymandering on a racial basis because most of the black people who vote live in big cities. And that's true, that's true all, all across the country. But what that means when they do this gerrymandering, that somebody's going to have to go to court and they're going to have to attack that they're going to have to claim and be able to prove that it's racial gerrymandering. And that's going to take a long time. In the meantime, the people are without a boy. Well, hasn't, isn't this a long American tradition? Eldridge Gary was a 19th century politician. Well, we mean the, the history of gerrymandering? Yes. Yeah. The, well, it's the named after Eldridge Gary, not his name yes, wasn't yes, Jerry. Yes. But he, I guess yeah. we don't want to call it gerrymandering. Yeah, it's it's um, back in the days, even when Madison was was running for president or running for Congress, rather, they tried they tried to gerrymander, but it was it, it was never it never went before the court, courts. Um, it, it was frowned on. If you go back and look at the at the, was the history when Madison was running for Congress, he ran for Congress just after the Constitution was adopted because he wanted to make sure the Bill of Rights gets passed. And there are a lot of people that objected to the Bill of Rights. So they tried to gerrymander the voting districts for Congress to so Madison couldn't get into Congress. And, and they eventually backed down because of the publicity. Uh, and of course, gerrymandering was done, as you said, back in the 1800s. It has been done, but it was never approved by the Supreme Court until recently. Now, you, you uh, are calling for a democracy of the, the people rather than a democracy of the dollars, of dollars. How would that work? What it boils down to, the only way to revive our democracy of people is that people have to reassume the role of being politically active. Um, as we know today, a lot of people are very disgusted. They don't want to vote. Uh, if we take the last election, which is bragged about by the fact that 160 million people almost voted. You have to look at it that 80 million people didn't vote. Yeah. 
And that many you, said that their vote wouldn't count. Yeah, that's because that's what they feel. And then if you and the biggest thing is if you go to the off off presidential year elections like 2022, um, in some of those elections, and particularly in the primaries, less than 30% of the people vote, which that means that your candidates are selected by 15% of the people. And those candidates are, tend to be extremists because it's the extremists that vote. So number one, people have to be willing to vote. We have to vote. The second thing is that people have to become politically active. Now, what does that mean? Um, it means a lot of different things because people are all different. Uh, by being political active, they have to, to, to pick on issues that are important to them and they have to get out and do something about it. I used a metaphor in Democracy of Dollars, which I thought kind of described it. I used the meta metaphor that we have to be like musicians in a New Orleans jazz band, which happens to be my favorite kind of music. And then if you listen to a, a jazz band, you have each of the musicians playing their own song, but somehow they've, they've synchronized it. They've, 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 it, it, it's syncopated. So they all are heard and they all have a part to play. And essentially well, that's they're all the playing to the same chord changes, even though they're improvising separately. That's correct. And that's what people have to do. We have to, we have to be willing to accept people who are different than us. We have to work with people who are willing to be different than us. And we have to synchronize like a New Orleans, New Orleans jazz band. I just think that's what we have to do. I also wrote that I, I'm very strong in believing that um, a five to four Supreme Court is a healthy thing. In other words, if, if you have two different strong parties and you have judges of different opinions and they're willing to talk to each other, you get better decisions. The worst thing we can do is have a court that all makes nine to zero decisions on human rights. That ends up to being bad because there's only really one side of the question being adequately addressed. So we have to get people active. We have to get people willing to talk to each other and we have to move ahead. Um, as I said in the book, crow like a rooster, we have to get out there and make, make some noise and get this done. But doesn't it matter whether, what uh, the five uh, judges, how the five judges vote as opposed to how the four judges vote. Right now, I guess we have a six to three majority. Uh, right. And it, it's pretty predictable how the court's going to decide on most cases. Um, it's pretty predictable. But here's how the system was supposed to work. Um, let's say you and I are presidents at two different times. The average president gets to a point about two I'm, judges. I hate to tell you, I'm too old to become president now. They make fun of uh, Joe Biden's age, and I'm a little older than he is. Well, so am I. I'm quite a bit older than he is. But so neither was we president, so we'll just make this a hypothetical. So you, let's say you're a president of a, and, you're, and you're a Democratic president. So you get a chance to appoint two judges. Let's say I come in and I'm a Republican president. I get a chance to appoint two judges. Over time, if that went on and on and on, you'd have a court balance. Sometimes it'd be liberal, sometimes it would be conservative, but you'd get voices from both and you get judges who could work together and come up with the good decisions. What happens now with this, the Senate being deadlocked as it is, McConnell, of course, didn't allow Obama to appoint his judge. Rather, he held it off so Trump could appoint more judges. That's not how it's supposed to work, and that was a really a slap to democracy. Yeah, we but, have to let the system go. But we have, have had conservative courts since the, the 40s, with the exception of the Warren Court, which is just, what, a, a 
15 years was, or so. Uh, it was, the, 50, the, yeah, the 50s and 60s, yeah. The rest of, all the rest from the 40s on have been conservative courts. That's because they've been appointed primarily by, by Republican judges. But the, there's, the court also, if you look back, uh, one of the Republican judges appointed was Sandra Day O'Connor. And she wrote about the very importance to the court of hearing the voice of the people. Now you have to remember the court itself has no authority to support to enforce its, its opinions. If if the opinions are not supported by the rest of the country, their opinions are ignored. Uh, so it's, if it's a strong voice of the people, and they're getting behind things, whether it be a Republican-dominated court or a Democratic-dominated court, if they're listening to the people which is what we have to accomplish, then we have the best chance of getting the best decisions. But we're hearing more and more people sounding like they would prefer an authoritarian kind of government. And you point out that countries that were once democratic but are now authoritarian have only a 20% chance of returning to democracy. That's correct. And I'm worried about it because the United States right today is maybe not totally authoritarian, but is certainly on the path. So that, that's a major problem. We just We have to face up to it. And we have to deal with it. That's why people have got to get active. We can't sit on the side. I, I was very lucky in law school. In the dean of the law school was Judge Harold Sebring. He was, had been a chief judge of the Supreme Court of Florida. He taught me constitutional law. But he'd also been a judge on the Nuremberg Court. He was appointed by Harry Truman to the Nuremberg Court. There were three this is not in the book, but it's it certainly influenced what I said. And 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 if we look at what went on in the Nuremberg court and what they were dealing with, they were dealing with good people who essentially stood on the sidelines and let Hitler and his clan get away with murder. That's what we have to prevent today. We have to not have the good people of the United States stand on the sidelines and let the country go to hell. That's, we can't do that. We have got to get people active. My guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large is Richard Jacobs. Uh, the book we're discussing is Democracy of Dollars, where natural and constitutional rights go to the highest bidder, published by Indies United Publishing House. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. You close your book with five takeaways, the key challenges that you believe need the attention of the American public in order to preserve our democracy. And the first and the first one you urge us to accept Albert Schweitzer's challenge, quote, my life is my argument. By doing so, each of us in some very personal way becomes involved in returning us to a democracy of people. But then you address Donald Trump's attempt to overturn the election and the January 6th attack on the Capitol and the Trump-appointed judges, well, some who followed the Constitution and the rule of law. Yeah, what I tried to do is, I was originally going to publish the book, uh, was planning to come out really last fall, then after the, the mess with the election came up, I decided to hold off and then write, a, write a, an epilogue of the lessons that I thought were then visible to us. And, and the first lesson was that we had heroes that saved the country, if you get right down to it. Those were the, those were the people that refused to bend to the pressures um, of those that were trying to create 
um, really a disaster for us. And, and you include and, Vice President Pence, but he has since said that he regrets his decision. Well, that may be true. I mean, he, he did the right thing at the moment. I guess maybe you know I was writing on what I knew at that time. I now know that it was uh, he got a, he got advised to do it because somebody told me he couldn't do it any other way. So he certainly he's not one of my my favorites. I would say that, <laughs> uh, but at that moment in time, he did the right thing. At for whatever reason, he did the right thing. Sometimes wrong people do the right thing. The second but, take. You go ahead. Well, I was just going to say the Schweitzer challenge is something that I think is, is extremely important for us to understand. Um, Albert Schweitzer is one of my favorite philosophers and those who remember who he is. He was a physician, a philosopher, played a medi medical clinic. Yeah, he was also one of the greatest Bach musicians there was. But when I, back when I was, at the, oh, I think it was, just out of law school, he was he was somebody was interviewing him to to write his biography. And back in the twenties, Schweitzer started to write a book on the philosophy of civilization. And he wrote the first two volumes, which I happened to own and read, but he never wrote the next two. And so when uh, he was being interviewed in Africa and asked why he never wrote his his next two volumes, he said, "Because I decided my life should be my argument." And to me, that's a statement for all of us. In other words, it's not what we do by read. Excuse me. It's not what we read. It's not what we think about. It's what we do that really is so important. And that's what happened in the election and in, in the follow-up when the White when the White House was invaded in January of this year. We had some heroes. We have some people who stood up to that. Essentially, they did in a small way what our founders did. Our founders pledged their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor. And that's what Schweitzer's challenge is. And that's just really how we have to operate. Now, the second and the third takeaways we, you already discussed a bit. Uh, the second looks at the right to vote, and you point out that 160 million people voted in the 2020 presidential election, but that was just two-thirds of uh, eligible voters. Uh, and the third takeaway looks at the non-voters. 29% of people who didn't vote said they didn't care, and 13% felt that voting wouldn't make a difference. Nine considered the system to be corrupt, and now many more people consider the system to be corrupt. In fact, uh, there's already talk about the, the uh, vote being fixed in Virginia before the vote is even being held. There were similar claims in California before uh, the recall vote. So uh, we're going to be hearing about corrupt elections constantly now, especially if they don't go the way we want them. That's correct. And, that, and that's something we have to stand up to and we have, to, we have to not let that discourage us. What, what happened in Germany, go back to, to, to the, the Second World War. What happened in Germany is that the good people stood aside and let Hitler and his henchmen operate. We cannot do that today. And we're having, a, maybe we're not having concentration camps and we're not having sterilizations and all the things that happened back then. But we're having people that are similarly motivated to make us not count to make things go their way. 
And we can't do that. We have to stand up to it. We cannot set aside. The fourth takeaway is about a diversity of voices and being able to listen to the other side and compromise. Right. But, but doesn't the, the current divide between the parties and the uh, make the ability to, to come together appear to be very challenging right now? Uh, yeah. it, it seems to me that it's, it's harder for Republicans and Democrats to compromise right now than in most other points in our history. It is, and I think that's influenced by a lot of things. One of the things is influenced by money. Like we talked earlier, um, we may have congressmen that think that we ought to control the price of drugs so we don't have to pay as much as we do. But a lot of money is going out there to force that not to occur. And, and so we, we have that as a problem. The other problem we have, we've, we've adopted a philosophy of winning at all costs. Is all that's important. All that's important is to win. And that is a significantly difficult issue. It, it, it puts our democracy in way distant second place. Well, the fifth takeaway deals with the responsibilities of corporate America in this conversation. Right. Well, what happened was that there was a, I learned after the election and after the failed coup that in the background, major corporations, which normally would not work together, like the Chamber of Commerce and, say, the unions, they actually work together to minimize the challenges to the votes. And they were very influential in the background of getting the election through in reality and good fashion. And uh, that goes back to something of philosophy of corporations. Back in the days, again, when I was in law school and earlier, corporations were looked upon as having a, a responsibility to the communities in which they operated, not just to their shareholders. And now they just then, don't want to pay taxes. Now they don't want to pay taxes and all they want to do is make all the money for the shareholders. But, uh, at least some of them do. And that has to change. We have to have corporations have a broader vision of why they're in business. I think, I think uh, Facebook is starting to understand that slowly and very difficultly right now. Now, we're pretty much out of time, but I do want to point out that proceeds from your book will be used to support your work on climate change and environmental policy through the Dick and Joan Public Interest Environmental Law Clinic and the Institute for Environmental Justice at Stetson University College of Law. Um, I should point out that you published another book before this that was a, of your photographs. So you are a photographer um, as well, Wanderlust? Yeah, this is my actually my fifth book. Uh, mm -hmm. <clears throat> a couple of the books were pure law books and other books were books on experience. And I was very fortunate that I've been able to trek the seven continents and photography was my hobby. So I, I wrote a book called Wonderlust, which was the lessons that I learned trekking the seven continents. And it was a coffee table book with about 100 of my photographs in it. And I suspect some of the things you learned wound up being applied to this book, which is called Democracy of Dollars, Where Natural and Constitutional Rights Go to the Highest Bidder. It's published by Indies United Publishing House. And my great thanks to Richard Jacobs for being our guest today on our show. I appreciate you having me and enjoyed it. Thank you. 
And that brings us to the end of our show. A special thanks to segment producer Kate Guan Allison, who prepared today's interview. You can access any of our over 500 past interviews at WBAI.org. We're also on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else that podcasts are available. And there are also links to all of our past shows at LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. If you would like to write to me, my email address is LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to take just a minute or two to ask you for your support for the station. We're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to step up and make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by going online right now to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950. That's 212-209-2950. To, to keep this show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. Like most public radio stations across the country, WBAI has been hit hard by this pandemic. Due to all of this instability, a lot of our longtime supporters have had to drop their support for the station, which is why we're asking anyone who is able to in this time of crisis to step up and make a contribution of any amount to help keep community radio, because we are 100% supported by our listeners, Community Radio and Leonard Lopez at Large on the air. Again, the way to do that is to call 212-209-2950 right now or go online to give to WBAI.org. And becoming a sustaining member of the station, what we call a BAI buddy, is a particularly great way to support WBAI without having to shell out a lot of money at any one time. You can also become a BAI buddy. You can become a BAI buddy or make a contribution of any amount by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950. A great thanks to everyone who's already supporting this station in the name of Leonard Lopate at large at whatever level they are doing it. And I hope that you can join us again tomorrow when Seth David Radwell will discuss his new book, American Schism, How the Two Enlightenments Hold the Secret to Healing Our Nation. We'll see you then.